So we're in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, and then we're going to jump down to verses 17 through 19 for today. It's, 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 it's one subject matter that we're going to cover today. Um, so with that, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity that we have to worship here today. We thank you for the, the freedom, the security that we have in this place to, to come, uh, to openly sing praises to your name, to put signs out on the corner, to invite our community in, to, uh, to really publicly worship you in a way that many in the world don't have. And so we don't take this freedom lightly. Um, we thank you for the, the scriptures that we have in our hands we're mindful that many have given their life um, to ensure that we have your words accessible to us. And so, Father, we turn our attention today uh, to the scriptures. Uh, we ask that your spirit, that he would guide us, that he would lead us, that he would uh, illuminate the meaning of the passage. Uh, Father, we pray that you would speak to us um, by your spirit, that you would help us not just to hear these words intellectually, but they would move into our hearts and that we would understand um, what it is that you would have for us today. We pray that you would give us a, a, a better understanding of um, how we relate to you and, and what contentment is, is all about. And, and so, Father, we ask that through this time you would help us um, to honor you with our lives and with our time. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. <laughs> 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. <clears throat> but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and cov covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you men of God. Skip down to verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Father, we do thank you uh, for your word. We ask that you would guide us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, we get to talk about our, everybody's favorite subject when you come to church. It's money, right? Uh, we, we love this. Um, you've probably resisted coming to church, or maybe you've had a friend resist your invitation to come from, to church uh, because all the church wants is your money. 
or maybe that was just me before I became a Christian. I, I really laugh at the young uh, 19 or 20-year-old gunner that was being invited to church. I, oh, the church just wants my money. I had about $1.27 in the bank account. I don't know that the church was like too concerned with my money. And I would go and they would give me free pizza every Tuesday night and I didn't contribute anything to it. Yet I would push back. Uh, you can relax. This is not a day where we try to coerce you into giving your money. We're not going to take a collection. We're not going to, to, to guilt you to give more. If you think that is what this is all about, you're missing the, the bigger issue. The, the, the bigger issue today is, is dealing with contentment, is dealing with hard issues, dealing with how does the follower of Christ relate uh, to their stuff, to their money um, that God has given you? How, how, do we, how do we navigate these things? And so we start in verse 6. Paul writes to young Timothy, but godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Now this, this should sound familiar to you if you were here last week. If you go back to verse Five At the very end of it, Paul had been confronting these individuals within the church who were taking the things of God, distorting them, and using them as a means to, to basically ex- get money from people. And they were using um, the faith for profit. And he ends there, who suppose godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. So, uh, so he brings up this phrase godliness. This term godliness has been used throughout Timothy. It's a word that's, that's really particular to Paul. He uses it in, really in his pastoral epistles. Um, so far in Timothy, we saw it in chapter 2, I think uh, verse 2. We see it where Paul tells Timothy um, that, that men should lift their hands and we should, we should pray for those in authority. And the reason we pray for those in authority is that we might... Uh, live quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness. Um, it, it's mentioned again in chapter 3, verse 16, chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, chapter 6. Here, a number of times, the word godliness is brought up again. Now, Charles Swindoll simply defines godliness in a way I really like, taking God seriously. What does it mean to be godly? Do you take God seriously? Which which affects all aspects of your life. He says godliness actually is a means of great gain, but he's not talking about money. In verse 5, he was talking about those that were using godliness, which wasn't really godliness, as a, as a tool to acquire money, and they were doing things that were wrong. And he says godliness is actually a means of great gain if accompanied by contentment. Now, what is contentment? Um, Contextually, if we were to transport ourselves back to Timothy's uh, life in, in Ephesus, which is modern-day Greece, and, or modern-day Turkey, excuse me, um, there were a number of churches there, and, and the school of thought um, philosophy was really big back then. And there were two schools, the Stoics and the Epicure- Epicureans. Um, and, and the Stoics, this word contentment, was one of their key teachings. And it literally means, if we were to take it off the pages of the Bible and just literally trans, translate it, it, it means self-sufficient. And so their idea is that if you could come to the place of self-sufficiency, where you're autonomous as an individual, you had no needs of anyone or anything, 
That's what this word was understood by them to be, contentment. Um, Paul took it and kind of stole it um, to make it mean Christ's sufficiency. There was one uh, Stoic philosopher during this time, I'm going to look at the pages and try to enunciate it, uh, Epictetus was his name. He lived in A.D. 50 during the same era that Paul and Timothy would have been, and he says this about this word, um, which I think is really good, and I think we can take some from it. He says, contentment comes not so much from great wealth as from few wants. And Paul took that word and that understanding from, this, from, from a Stoke philosopher, and he sort of coined it to mean Christ sufficiency. And, and what I mean by that, it, it's not that Paul lost his desire once, but as he lived his life, his, his desire, his focus landed on Christ. If you'll turn with me um, back to Philippians uh, chapter 3, if you have a hard time finding it, it would be the Gospels, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, and you'll get to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Go eat popcorn is an easy uh, way to remember it. When you get to the pop part of corn, you found Philippians. And so in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, the first seven verses... Paul begins to lay out sort of his, um, his genealogy in comparison with others. He, he, um, he was unlike the other apostles. The other apostles were blue-collar men. They were fishermen. They were untaught, untrained, un- uneducated in many ways. When they stood before the Sanhedrin uh, under trial, they, they said, well, these are uneducated men, but clearly they've spent time with Jesus. And they, they were sort of an anomaly now, now, Paul was on the other end of the spectrum. He was very wealthy, very educated. Um, he, he was on the pipeline to basically be the leader of the Sanhedrin, which was the, the, is Israel's supreme court for all practical purposes. He, he, was a great, he was a guy of great power, great influence. Um, and he lists all of these things in the first seven verses. But then he comes to verse 8, and he says... More than that, I count all things, these all things are all of these priorities, privileges that he had in his life, all of these things that that gave him advantage over the rest of the population. More than that, I count all these things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. Some translations use the word dung, which is a better word, uh, most Christian scholars, th- this word is, is literally in the Greek is a word that would not be allowed, I, I would not feel comfortable saying it, but you guys all know what dung is, and that's getting you closer to the original meeting. It says, so that I might gain Christ. And, and so in this, he's describing contentment, that he, in Christ, has everything he needs, everything he desires. Uh, he's focused Hold your places here in Philippians because we'll end there. We're going to come back to this section. But we can go back to Timothy. And in verse 6, this verse that you can look at these words and you can ponder them. 
it's kind of like spiritual beef jerky. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. That, that's something that you can just let bounce around in your mind. That, like, what does it mean that godliness is a means of great gain when, when sort of married with contentment? Like, how do, we, how do we achieve this? How do we attain this? Now, Paul doesn't leave us hanging. He's going to continue in verse 7. He says, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. I was present for three um, births in our house, uh, three of our children. The fourth one, Titus, was a a special case that neither Anna or I were present. Well, Anna was physically present, but she was unconscious because of the emergency situation. And and I've noticed with all of our children entering the world, um, they just kind of came in their birthday suits. There was no jewelry, there was no clothing, there was no anything. Titus, we saw him dressed, so I'm assuming he came the same way. Um, But Paul says, for we brought nothing into the world. So your part, your point of entry, you came with nothing. And when you depart, you're going to depart the same way. Now, your family might put, if you're, if you're buried in a, in, a, in a casket, your family will put, probably put clothes on you, but you're not taken anywhere. Um, the New American Commentary says, since after a brief stay, we shall depart this, li- we shall depart this life as we came in. It is sheer folly to concern ourselves with earthly matters. Material gain is irrelevant and greed is irrational. Our lives are like that. It was noted that at John Rockefeller's death, um, sort of a person that was close, but not really close to the situation, had a relationship with uh, John Rockefeller's accountant. And that person inquired of the accountant, hey, how much did he leave behind? And the accountant, in his uh, quick-witted wisdom right on the spot, said he left everything behind. (laughs) Like, he he didn't take anything with him. Everything got left. Um, This is is a fixed truth for all of us. The, the, The day of your creation and the day of your death are appointed by God. All, all you have is what's referred to as the dash, and what do you do with it? Like, how, how, how do you navigate this? But, but Paul starts in this idea of contentment that basically you brought nothing, you can take nothing. So start with that frame of reference. Verse 8, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. The word is used again. And, and there's a little bit more instruction. I mean, with these we shall be content. Well, what are the these? So food, we, we understand food. This is dealing with like your next meal. Covering is not talking about a house. The word for covering is dealing with the clothes on your back. So Paul says, if you have uh, food, if you had breakfast and you have lunch taken care of and you have clothes, and everybody has clothes here, with those two things, you're, el- you're, you're eligible or you have the opportunity for contentment. Um, in 1963, there was an, there was an, economic, an economist by the name of uh, Robert Hilbroner, Heilbroner, I'm not sure how you say it, And he wrote a book sort of um, to try to help Americans understand the great wealth that we have. Um, 
And in his book, he, he describes what, what an American would have to do to understand what life is for really the rest of the world. Um, and this is what he writes. <clears throat> we begin by invading the house of our imaginary American friend to strip it of all its furniture. Everything goes Beds, chairs, tables, televisions, set. In today's time, we'd probably have to say sets, plural. Lamps. We will leave the family with a few old blankets, a kitchen table, a wooden chair. Along with the bureaus go the clothes. Each member of the family may keep his quote-unquote wardrobe, his oldest suit or dress, a shirt or blouse. We will permit a pair of shoes for the head of the family, but none for the wife or children. We move to the kitchen. The appliances have already been taken out, so we turn to the cupboards. The box of matches may stay. A small bag of flour, some sugar and salt, a a few moldy potatoes already in the garbage can must quickly be rescued, for they will provide much of tonight's meal. We will leave a handful of onions, a dish of dried beans, all the rest we take away, the meat, the fresh vegetables, the canned goods, the crackers, the candy. Now we strip the rest of the house, the bathroom. It is dismantled, the running water shut off, the electric wires taken out. Next, we take away the house. The family can move into the tool shed. Communications must go, no more newspapers, magazines, books. Not that they are missed, since we must take away the family's literacy as well. Instead, in our shanty town, we will allow one radio. Now, government services must go. No more postmen, no more firemen. There is a school, but it is three miles away and consists of two classrooms. There, um, there are, of course, no hospitals or doctors nearby. The nearest clinic is 10 miles away and is tended by a midwife. It can be reached by a bicycle, provided that the family has a bicycle, which is unlikely. Finally, money. We will be gracious and allow the family $5. This will prevent our breadwinner from experiencing the tragedy of an Iranian peasant who went blind because he could not raise the $3.94 which he mistakenly thought he needed to receive admission to a hospital where he could have been cured. So I like this story because when we look at contentment and we look at this, this standard... If we have food and clothing, we, should, we can be content. Um, the more I think about this and the more I ponder it, the reality is, is, is around the world for most people of human history, there are exceptions, of course. That there are tr- truly those in poverty that only have the clothes on their back and only barely have the food for the next meal. But in large part, most of humanity has more than that. They, they, have, they have food for a few meals. Um, they have a few change of clothes. And so when I look at this, when I see Paul's instruction, the biblical construction, like if we have food and clothing, with these we shall be content. It doesn't say it, but I can't help but to think 
what's happening here is if, if we as followers of Christ set our standard as, what are my needs? Well, well my, my needs are my next meal. Lunch is coming. I'm looking at the clock. I'm going to, be, I'm going to want lunch. Um, and, I, like, and see right there, I go, oh, I went to the store yesterday. Um, so we got all sorts of fresh vegetables and fruit, and I went to Smart Final, and the, the, the fridge is just like, our, man, we could have you all over for lunch. Like, there, there's literally enough food so that we could have you all over for lunch. I can feed my family for like, like if things really got bad just with my house, and I'm totally not a guy that's like a, I forget what you call them. What? Prepper. I'm counting on having prepper friends. If it comes to that, I'm going to go to their house. I'm not, I'm not a prepper. But when I look at my non-prepping preppiness, I, I, I think you could lock me in my house with my family. Man, I think we could make it a few weeks, month maybe. Like if we really like clothes, I got more, like I'm not even a clothes person. Like I, I'm happy with my like three outfits and I can go a long time with that. I, I, but I got way more clothes than I even need. I know that when I go home, I can change into shorts and a t-shirt and my, my flip-flops. And so when I look at this standard, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. My belief is that most people have that. And so that anything that's excess, what it should turn to is gratitude. Man, God, you're so good to me. I don't only have pants. I have shorts. I have a t-shirt. I have flip-flops. I, I got enough food for lunch and dinner. And breakfast is even covered. And lunch to like, man, Lord, you have blessed me abundantly. I look at the life of Job. I've been reading Job this, this last couple weeks. And um, I started my, through the Bible reading plan like in April. So I'm a little bit behind and we'll finish late too. And, and, uh, but in the beginning, Job, right? The, the wealthiest man on earth. God sa- Satan goes to God and says, oh, he will curse you if you take all his stuff away. And so in the opening, I mean, you just did the opening paragraphs of Job. Job's life is just devastated. Every, everything's taken from him. And in Job 1, verses 21 and 22, what does Job say? <clears throat> he says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. Sound familiar? The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. So we have this picture of Job standing before God with his hands open. Everything's been taken away. And he says, you know what? I came naked. I'm going to depart naked. Anything I have, it's because God put it there. If God takes it away, so be it. Blessed be his name. He can do whatever he wants to me. Think of Horatio, Horatio Spafford, who wrote It Is Well With My Soul. I think it's the last song that we're singing. It's a hymn that's well known. Not everybody knows the story behind the story, so I'm, I hope I'm not being redundant to remind us that when we sing that song of It Is Well With My Soul, Peace Like a River, and there's a bunch of other words that I are eluding me right now. He was in Chicago and everything was destroyed in the fires. He sent his family to Europe. Super wealthy man. That ship on the way to Europe 
sank and his whole family, everybody was killed. And so here's a guy who, in all of his wealth, all taken away in a moment, then all of his family was taken away. He finally gets on a boat going and the ship captain found the spot where his family perished. And on that spot, God gave him the words to it is well with my soul. And why do I bring this up? This is true contentment. That if you have Christ, you have everything you need. I want to be careful. There's, there's verses 6 through 10. There, there, there's, there's no admonition to the Christian, to the follower of Christ, that you're supposed to make a vow of poverty. There's no, there's no condemnation of wealth. And really, the more I think about verses 6 through 10, I don't see a whole lot of instructions. It's almost like a, a, a proverbial sort of section. There's wisdom here. Paul says, but godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of it. This is just truth. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Truth. It's not saying if you have more. I actually think that it's saying that if you have more than that, it should lead you to gratitude. Like, oh man, God is a good God. He gives abundantly. That's what it says down in verse, I think it's 17, who supplies us with all things in joy. We have a, we have a good God. It's our perception that's wrong. And then we get to verse 9. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. This is the desire, the drive to get rich. Not to be rich, it's... But those who want to get rich fall into temptation. Solomon, the wealthiest man of his era, and he writes in Ecclesiastes 5.10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, and he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. So this desire, this drive for more and more and more stuff, it will never satisfy. There's a Roman proverb that says, Money is like sea water, The more you drink, the thirstier you get. And so the concern here by Paul to young Timothy, he says the concern is not being rich. He's not speaking to those who are rich. He's saying that desire, that drive to get rich will lead you to bad places, falling into temptation, resulting in ruin and destruction. Now I can hear all of you already quoting Tevye from Fiddler on the Roof, as his friend says, money is the root of all evil. And Tevye says, may the Lord smite me with it and may I never recover. I can hear it. But Paul continues his warning. Verse 10. The most misquoted verse, or one of the most misquoted verses in all of the Bible. For the love of money is a circle, highlight, underlying. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs so the love of money is a a a there are there are there are many causes in, of evil there are many things that lead astray and it says the love of money not money itself the the love the the heart for money the desire to get more of it 
that within an individual is the root of all sorts of evil. Um, don't, don't misread this verse. Don't misquote this verse. Money is inert. For those of you that don't deal with like explosive, inert means it doesn't have any power to it. Money, money is neutral. Um, my father, he's a retired financial advisor. I remember from a young age, him, he, he talked about money. And one of the things that always stood out to me is, is he dealt with and worked with the individuals who had a, a lot of money. He always said that um, money, he said the same thing, that money's, money's neutral. It, it only, he said what it, what it does is it, it highlights, it emphasizes what an individual already is. And so if you have a greedy poor person, if you give them a bunch of money, they're going to be a greedy rich person. And if you have a generous poor person and you give them a bunch of money, they're going to be generous. M- money only accentuates what one already is. It's, it's inert. It's, it's just a, a, it's a commodity. It's, it's nothing. And so Paul is getting at the heart. The warning is towards the heart. But those who want to get rich for the love of money, it's that desire within you for more of it. And um, that, that's, that's the caution. And I don't think he's addressing poor people. I, he's just giving truths. Now, if we skip down to verse 17, he is actually going to address the rich. Instruct those who are rich in the present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So these last couple verses are dealing with instructions to the rich. He's saying, I'm targeting this to the certain individuals. Now, before you check out and say, I'm not rich, this doesn't apply to me, I'm just going to start thinking about lunch because Gunnar mentioned lunch. I'm going to ask you two questions. Do you have more food than just your next meal? Is lunch covered for you already? And I don't say this joking, like if you legitimately are in a bind and you need food, we as a church will provide food for you. There's like, there are individuals in the church that are angels that keep that freezer stocked with food. If you need food, let me know. I'll give you food. We got, it's like magic. I don't want to say magic. It just like appears and I'm pointing to the freezer back there. I know where the key is. It's just always food is in there. People come to me and say, uh, my family's really in need. Here, take all these trays. Here, take them. I go back three weeks later, and it's like they've reappeared. Like, so if you're, if you're in need and you don't know where your next meal like, we have food for you. But generally speaking, most of us have lunch covered. Do you have more than just the clothes that you're wearing? And if you answer yes to those two questions, you're rich. <clears throat> I've said it before, and uh, I'll say it now and I'll say it again. And, but the poorest in the United States are still the wealthiest of human history. If you don't believe me, I'd, I'd encourage you to make a $5 investment 
go to Little Caesars and get a $5 hot and ready pizza, walk downtown, offer slices of pizza to the homeless people downtown San Diego. My guess is the response from the homeless people is they're going to turn you away from the pizza. I say this because it's happened to me. It's happened to me. Um, oh, yeah, pizza. Well, I'd prefer this. And fill in the blank. I, somebody over there has, they have a, they got Philly cheesesteaks, this group over here. So we're going to, you know, they, I, would, I was shocked the first time this happened. Because if you do this in Mexico, like if you go down to Mexico and you start passing out slices of bread, you better have a plan together because you're going to sw- get overrun with people because they're starving. Like they, they need help. So unless you have a very structured, okay, everybody make a line. If you make a line, then we're going to have a barricade and we'll let one person through. We'll give them what they're... That's, that's how you have to do it in places where there's genuine need. And so I say all this to get back to the point. Instruct those who are rich so all of us are rich. By biblical standards, we are rich. And so what does he say? Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So point number one, I think, is to be humble. I think of Job. Um, Anything that you have, in excess of your next meal and the clothes on your back, it's because God's a good God. And he's richly supplied you with all things to enjoy. So anything you have in excess, I mean, everything you have is of God. But if your standard for contentment, if you have clothes on your back and you have food for your next meal, you're golden. Anything beyond that is gravy. And so we're told to be humble. Don't be conceited. Be grateful. Fix your hope on God. It says fix your hope on God. This is a, this is a theme that flows through Timothy. We saw it in 4.10. We, we saw it in 5.5, 5, trying to discern, discern between the widows. And so this idea is an individual who has their, their hope fixed on God. This is being Job. As, he, as God gives him stuff, he's looking at God. God, oh man, you filled my cup. Thank you, God. As God took away stuff, Job didn't have his eyes on the stuff. He had his eyes on God. God gave and God take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If he wants to give me much, great. If he wants to take it all away, great. I, I have this relationship with God and that's all I care about. I, I, what, so often what happens is, I, I think it was in a, Where the Red Fern Grows, I think is the book that it was in where they talk about like hunting for raccoons. I have no raccoon hunting experience. But apparently in that book, it says that you can drill a little hole in a tree and you can put a little shiny thing in there. The raccoon sticks his hand makes a fist, and gets stuck. That, where the red fern grows, am I right? Am I close? Yeah. And so often that's what we do with our stuff. Is God, we have a stuff, and we're like, hey, thank you, God, for all this stuff. And then our eyes go to the stuff, and we begin to worship the stuff. And then God takes away the stuff, and we, our fists get tighter, and we're like, no, my stuff, my joy, my happiness, everything. Paul says, no, keep your eyes on God. Fix your hope on him. Why? Because he's a good God. He richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Like, it's okay to have stuff. It's okay to enjoy the stuff that you have. 
He continues, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So what does he say? He says, do good. If you're rich, to those who are rich, do good. Use what God has given you to do good with it. Be generous and share. I think that the, you know, the uh, generosity, hospitality, these things, it, I know for me, like it, it, I look at the stuff and to give it away, I have this, but if I have my eyes on him, it's like I'm not worried about this stuff being resupplied because God can resupply it. I know I've shared my struggle with French fries, but it like, you know, like I grew up with the you never touch them in another man's French fries. And it, it's like where I see this within me. Like if I have French fries and my wife or children like reach into my pot of fries, I want to stab them because <laughs> those are my fries. Five Guys has been helpful because it's more like community fries, and so it's helped me to get over the greed. But, but if he's given you stuff, don't, don't, you don't have to hoard it. You can, you can have a, a generous heart because you're humble, because you got this stuff from God, and if God has presented you in a situation where you can share, do that. And, and finally, he says to invest in eternal things. Like, like to the bottom line of this whole passage, I think is Proverbs 3, 9, which, which instructs the, the reader to honor the Lord with your wealth, with your stuff. You, you came into this world naked, you're going to leave naked. Everything you have is a blessing from him. If you have more than your next meal and the clothes on your back, you're, you've been blessed beyond belief. So keep your eyes on him and honor him with the stuff that he's given to you to enjoy. Now, as we close, we, I, t- I warned you that we'd go back to Philippians. I want to go back to Philippians. Paul shares with us the secret of contentment. This was clearly a subject that was important to him. And so in, a Philippi- in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, Paul writes, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that, it now, that now, at last, you have revived your concern for me, Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked the opportunity. This is Paul's very spiritually minded way of saying he was in a pickle. He knew the church in Philippi loved him before, but he had no need back then. Well, now he's under arrest. And kind of like it was house arrest, so it was kind of like the gentle arrest. It wasn't like when he was in a pit in 2 Timothy waiting his execution. But if you were under arrest during that time, it was up to your loved ones to provide your food and your, your care, and you would have to be sustained by outsiders, or you just wouldn't have it. And so Paul says, I knew you always loved me, but before you lacked the opportunity, but now that I'm arrested, I have a need, and it's presented this opportunity for you to love me. It really is a great perspective. That's why when I brought up Alyssa, that she's now having knee surgery. So the opportunity is going to present itself to her friends to love her, which we knew they always loved her, but now they get to demonstrate it. So verse 11, he says, not that I speak from want, 
For I have learned, that's encouraging, that we can learn contentment. To be content, same word. In whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. And any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. So he's setting himself up. He's, he's painted the picture for contentment, this, stoic, this word from Stoic philosophy, which meant self-sufficiency. He's stolen and he's redefined And it's become, in verse 13, a verse that's so misquoted. I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. And we take this to mean, like, name it and claim it. Go do whatever you want. And and whatever it is, I'll accomplish it in Christ. He's like my little uh, magic rabbit foot. And if I say I'm going to do this, I can accomplish it. That's not at all what this verse is saying. I think the more appropriate translation for verse 13 would be, I can endure all things, not through Christ, but in Christ. I can endure all things in Christ who strengthens me. Paul says, whatever my circumstance, whether I have much or I have little, whether I'm in prison or I'm free, whether I have a whole lot of food or I have zero food, in Christ I can endure all things because that's contentment. So what's our greatest need? Our greatest need is to be reconciled with God. And if you have received the gift of salvation through Jesus' work on the cross, you have everything you need. And if Jesus took care of your great need of salvation, won't he take care of the little things? Skip on down to verse 19. Look look what Paul says. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And Timothy says he's given you all kinds of stuff to enjoy. So if we fix our hope on God, we recognize how much he's given us, and it leads us to gratitude and thankfulness. And whether we have it or we don't, we're having good seasons, bad seasons, financially, health-wise. Our, our emotions and, and our joy is found in Christ, not in our stuff. And as we close today, we're going to sing, It Is Well With My Soul. And don't lose sight of the context of what that song was, was written about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth that's found in the old hymn, God will take care of you. It's so easy for us to lose sight of that truth. We are sinners in great need, and you took care of that through the cross. That was a huge thing. And Father, it's so easy for us to take our eyes off of you and to worry about material things. For It's with money we buy our food. It's with money that we uh, pay our mortgage or rent and fill our car with gas and just all the things that our life operates on, it comes down to money. And so it's so easy for us to take our eyes off of you and to place our eyes on our bank accounts, on our retirement accounts, on the packages that our work provides for us. And so, Father, we confess that to you. And even as I list these things, it's so much more than just 
food and the clothes on my back. You have blessed us beyond belief. And so, Lord, help us to keep our perspective correct. Give us grateful hearts. Help us to, to really appreciate the life you've given. We have been given much. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be a content people, that we would find our uh, dependence on in you. We ask, Lord, that as we have uh, been given much, that you would help us to honor you with our wealth, for our money, our resources, our time, our gifts. Father, guard our hearts from the the idol of the love of money and, and desiring to get more and more and more. Our life is so short here. And in the end, we will depart this world as we came into it with nothing. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to prioritize our lives in a way that's good for us, glorifying to you, and we need help. So we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.